Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Jill and I start to wrap up the series on Nietzsche's book on the genealogy of morality. We do not quite get finished. Rather, we discuss a few questions about the book. Uh, we have been promising that we'll do a discussion on what we think Christians should think about Nietzsche. We do not quite get there with this discussion today. Next week, though, we will attempt to finish up the series with the question, what should a Christian think about Nietzsche? And as you might guess, it is not as simple as saying Nietzsche bad, Christians good. We had considered talking about how Nietzsche's ideas are almost prophetic for how society has developed today, but for now, we'll leave that for you to pick through and either discover or reject. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for information on our all-volunteer organization and our goal to provoke people to the wonder of God's truth, goodness, and beauty. And of course, you can find blogs, other podcasts, and how you might get involved. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or requests, please email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an A. Or tweet us at Toward Wisdom. Enjoy. So, as we start our fifth podcast on Nietzsche, fifth of five, six, maybe ten, who knows, it, it, it might be helpful you know, because we've gone through all three essays, we've done an introduction. We're going to start trying to put a bigger picture together a little later in this podcast, uh, in this episode. But Travis, can you give us kind of a an a very brief overview of what's going on in this, just to help remind us what's Nietzsche trying to do in this book that leads to this third essay um, and about the ascetic ideals and and. Uh, and, and gets us prepared to think about these, these big questions. Nietzsche's primary question is how did morality arise in a material world in which beings came to, in which the diversity of life came from evolution? But it's not specifically, it's not just morality. It's really how did the morality that honors or that, that honors compassion, pity, that seems to even be honoring weakness more and more. How did that arise in a setting in which life exists only by by exerting strength and power? And so that's that's really sort of the question he's asking. How did this arise, and what does it look like? Uh, and so, if you hold an evolutionary uh, materialistic evolutionary viewpoint, compassion doesn't seem to have much of a place in it, even though you can make some arguments for that. Uh, and he he criticizes the people who describe it as who, who describe how it arose in terms of protecting herd animals and so on and so forth. But he also sort of agrees with it, but describes it in a slightly different way. Nevertheless, the question is, how did the morality that uh, embraces weakness and even honors weakness, or at least the honoring honors the honoring of weakness through compassion, uh, how did that arise within an evolutionary materialistic? Uh, structure in, within that structure within that world. So he, he's trying to tell this story of the morality we have today, where it came from, how we got here, how it seems to turn things upside down. Um, will to power is a theme that keeps coming up again and again and again and again in Nietzsche. And he talks about how there's the will to power but there's also this kind of this will that's exercised by the by what was weak, by what was uh, uh, le lesser, I guess you could say, um, that is a 
a twisted form of the will to power, I guess you could say that he talks about it at one point as a as a will to remove. We we remove can remove the distractions, or we can remove the things that we don't want to deal with, so that we we don't have to to change. We can say you know what we want is how things are or whatever. Um, but he also talks about this this how it gets twisted in that with like the love of neighbor. It's kind of a will to power because when you love your neighbor, you're you're exercising a power and bringing them pleasure or bringing them goodness, but you're also kind of demeaning yourself in the process. And, and Nietzsche says that in the modern contemporary sense of, of, uh, of our ethics, of our, of our priestly morality as, as, as you've referred to it, that um, that denial of the self is an essential part. Um, can you, can you say some more about that with, especially like the love of neighbor and, and how he sees that in modern ethics. A lot of people interpret Nietzsche's idea of the will to power is that we should be striving for the will to power or something like that. Nietzsche doesn't, I don't think he would say that. He says will to power just is what motivates everything. Well, if there's, if will to power is kind of the grounding of everything, then how in the world is this morality of love your neighbor, of, actions and ways of actually almost undermining the self how does that how does that develop and what could be the motivations of it and so this idea of loving the neighbor is uh according to Nietzsche a way of exerting the will to power over someone that keeps you safe and also depreciates your your yourself and so why why do why do so I love my neighbor. That gives me a kind of power because when I do something kind for the neighbor, it causes them to be happy. It gives them pleasure. And that's a way, of, that's a kind of way of exerting power. It gives me an experience of power it, it, because it, 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 has, it creates an effect in that person. At the same time, it depreciates me and my own will. Well, why would I want to do that? Well, because there's, uh, I feel my weakness. I experience myself as weak and my will to power is, uh, and, and so I don't, because I don't experience power in myself, I want to, I want to remove my focus from myself as much as I can. You might say something like that. I don't like experiencing, I want to be distracted from my, from my weakness. And so I do that by exerting power in the only way I can. And that is not by controlling in any kind of meaningful way, uh, in terms of, I should say not meaningful way, but in a way that, that, that exposes me to danger and causes me to need to confront something that I need to overcome. Instead, I just kind of bow and simper and bring pleasure to the people who are more powerful than me. And in that way, they don't hurt me because I can't stand up for myself. I don't have to confront something that I have to overcome. And at the same time, uh, it gives me an, an experience of power over that person, even though it's not real power, at what? least in Nietzsche's view. So... So, for Nietzsche, everything in the world, all of our interactions with each other, are about a power struggle. Would that would that be correct to say? So he believes life itself is life itself is fundamentally will to power, and he holds this by talking about well, how do how does life exist? Well, life exists by. In fact, it's not just life. All things are will to power. Uh, physics itself is about an object taking space and exerting causal power over things. And so even if you just consider a rock, does a rock have a will to power? 
Well, yeah, it carves out space and you must fight to take that space. It fights with you to possess that space, you might say. I mean, it doesn't like, you know, grow arms and fight you. But if you've ever fallen on a rock, you realize this thing, it has its space and it doesn't want to give. And that's what makes it a thing. It, it, it marks a space or, or it creates a force, right? It, it exerts power. All things are exertion of power. What Nietzsche says is we are physiological beings. We're driven by the same thing that drives all the physics. And yet for some reason, people have assumed that humans are, have, and he's, you can see this as a criticism of atheists in a lot of ways. They think that we who have come from the very physical forces that are all about causality, taking up space, will to power, you might say, the word will there might be a little bit fuzzy. We are made up of that. And yet we've risen above that. And now we have a different kind of morality, but this is just what we are. And so uh, he's not talking about people have this, have hidden motives in the sense of, there, we're all about will to power, but we're trying to deceive each other. He says there's people who, I mean, he didn't necessarily say this, but I think he would say there are people who, in fact, perhaps think that they're acting out of love, but they haven't really looked at themselves, right? That's how he starts off the book. These people really don't know themselves because the motivations that drive us are deep down in. You might even say that they're deep, deeply rooted in an ancient evolutionary chain of this is the best way to exert power in a degenerated life. Um, and so uh, Nietzsche has, he has almost a um, deterministic view of how we function. And so to, to think that people have bad motives is, uh, well, that's kind of what Nietzsche is getting at, but not really. Nietzsche's not, I mean, he, he does think there are those who have bad motives and he thinks those who are, there are those who cater to the weak and the priestly, and that this could in fact destroy the few admirable, strong people that are out there uh, that happened by sort of happy accident in his mind. It's Nietzsche's digging a little bit deeper than I think most people might, might think that you can't get away from this. This is just physiologically what we are. So to run with this a little more to just try and help clarify things what is the role of society or what does Nietzsche think the role of a society should be um, because it seems like you could make a case that one could that one's will to power might say you know what giving up a little bit of what I want so that there's more people involved and then we can accomplish more as a whole than I could on my own would be an exercise of, of a physiological, will to power kind of thing that might get might help also explain some of the the path of where we've gotten to what he's really unhappy about or really uh, mm. dissatisfied about um but it doesn't seem like you know from from my uh limited knowledge of Nietzsche it doesn't seem like he discusses much of 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 the the step into a society and how that might function apart from ending up in this unhappy uh, uh, priestly morality position. First of all, Nietzsche believes that most people don't have the capacity to exist in, in the strong way. Now, I could say more about that, but but generally speaking, 
the strong or the ubermensch, we might say the ubermenschen, to put it in the plural, are a rarity. And so why do we need, why do we need, I mean, we can ask kind of two questions here. Why do we have the rest of humanity that's not the strong? Why did the weak even come to come into existence? And the second is, what's the point of society? And there, there's, uh, of gathering in groups. And I think uh, the two are sort of related. And I don't know if they're, if Nietzsche goes into great detail about this. So there's a little bit of speculation here on my part, but some of it's based on uh, stuff he said. But part of, I think he believes that that for for nature to bring into being something that that is strong, it requires a lot of random processes, and then there are happy ac- accidents. And he believes the strong are happy accidents, and you got to make a lot of mistakes to get to the to get to the one that you're looking for. And so there's some element of that's why there's all these examples. Well, that's why most people are weak. And only a few are strong because you need to you need to make a lot of mistakes before you can make, especially if you're working in a blind random process. Um, the why do we gather in society? Well, because most of us are weak, and even the strong find find a use for them. Right? There's even a point where he talks about um, birds of prey don't condemn the little lambs. <laughs> Because they need them, and there's—I mean, we're not—we're not talking about the strong going around eating people, but there's a sense in which, if it weren't for the average, the average person, the strong would not be able to do and manifest the kinds of things that they do and manifest, right? So right. you can think of a great artist. Well, you can't have great art unless we get to the point where society has created the possibility of some at least some extent of leisure. If we're a hunter-gatherer society where we're spending sixteen hours a day hunting and collecting food and, and you know half of us are starving to death you can't you know, I mean the best you're going to do are some paintings on a cave wall right you're it's going to be difficult to develop shakespeare or or the the great works of art that you find you know all over the place right and so we just can't get to that point and so uh why do societies built well because even the strong recognize the benefit of them uh, but then there's the negative side where it can uh, we can become so obsessed with maintaining the stability of a of a society that is uh, that I'd almost say something like d- protects itself against the strong because the strong sense tend tend to modify they tend to change things because uh, they don't go with what the norms are they're, they're willing they they're the they're they can shift the norms and they can just act outside of the norms and so society can become fearful and hateful of those kinds of people and so society tr- tries to establish particular kinds of norms to to keep the sheep safe and therefore rejects anyone who brings norms and ideas from outside into it so you can you can think of something like um you know, when does the earth revolve around the sun or sun around the earth, right? And so you got Copernicus and Galileo and these other kind of guys. Well, uh, there was a, a a view of the universe that we held that we wanted to be, we were afraid of of changes coming and then get, that, could, that could throw the norm and the status quo and tell us where our place in the universe is and so on and so forth. So you can look at it as an example like that, but, you know, 
this is this is true in, in all villages and so on. So where someone comes in in all tribes and villages and small societies, bigger societies become a little more accepting, a little more flexible in a lot of ways. And even societies every once in a while go through purification processes that are that are and I say purification, put that in scare quotes, right? Uh uh, you know, Germany had all the problems after World War One, and so they took this long lasting anti-Semitism that had been around for a long time and they used that they they did that. It was, they weren't just anti-Semites. They were really anti a lot of people. And uh, anti-Semitism was a huge deal. But their arrogance and so on and so forth, what they were trying to do is purify the culture of Germany. And they did that by trying to cast out those who didn't fit in with the status quo. Well, the Jews didn't fit in with the status quo. And so they were a great scapegoat. Um, uh, I think our society in some ways is is wrestling with the purification process right now, too. Let me let me ask a, a more uh, less abstract um, question, but you know you look at something like uh, in Qatar where they're getting ready for the World Cup in 2022, and they've been building all these stadiums and then using uh, immigrant labor to do it, and uh, something like an average of three people are dying in every day while building these things because of the the way that. I mean, they're working 24 hours a day. They're kind of shortcutting some safety stuff to keep the speed moving. Um, but it's it's an example of the strong using the weak for the strong's purposes. How would Nietzsche handle something like that? I mean, now, I mean, there's there's a lot more complexities in 21st century, in our 21st century world than there would have been in late 19th century. But... You know, just as a as a I don't even I don't want to say caricature, but as a a, a very uh, oversimplified uh, situation, is that something where the strong use the weak for their purposes to 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 um, to to bring about uh, what their their will is? Um, it, it it or to use the sheep analogy, you know, you're going to take the sheep to a better pasture. But it's going to be a treacherous path, and some of them are going to die. And well, some they're just sheep, so it's not a big deal. Is is that how Nietzsche kind of sees it with the uh, the, the interplay between the weak and the strong? Yes, yeah, I mean, I think I think sort of yes and no. Because uh, if you look at this from a strictly evolutionary standpoint, losing three people a day to build something is is a complete meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. I mean. Uh, that was Travis speaking, not yeah. me. <laughs> Understand it within context, because I mean, think about think about the number of people. In fact, there's an. I just I just watched. Uh, I just recently watched the War of the Worlds with the Tom with Tom Cruise, but it ends with that this bit. And I'm I don't know if it's straight because I've never read the the actual book, but it ends with this bit that says something like, "At the cost of because you know the the story is we get attacked by aliens and they they get sick, right? Because they're not they can't they're not prepared for the for the illnesses that we that we possess." And it said something like, at the cost of a billion lives, we've earned our place here. We've earned our place to, we've, we've earned our place on this soil. The Mar the, the aliens, Martians, what the aliens did not pay that billion life cost to earn their place here. And the idea here is the utter brutality of evolution and the fact that we are the products of evolution. I mean, according to this, according to Nietzsche and according to the, the standard model, we are the products. We are the outcome of evolution. And I'm not here. To, I'm not. I'm, my purpose isn't to debate evolution. My purpose is to debate what 
evolution tells us about us. And the thought that, that I, can, I can coherently hold a view that we arise out of a way of existence that is pure, pure, that where you grow purely by violation of other things, and then hold that, well, yeah, but I'm not that way. Yeah, you are. You can't throw away millions of years of programming by, I don't know, going to college and being all high-minded. That doesn't solve that doesn't solve the problem. This is built, this is your very cellular, this is your in your DNA down to its origin. And so there's not this isn't this isn't so easily thrown away by, you know, well, I mean, we become enlightened. People 30 years ago were horrible and 100 years ago they were worse and 200 years ago they were even more monstrous. No, that's you. That's what we are. And the thing is, we we look like we're compassionate, but we're not. And I, again, I'm, I'm, Nietzsche sees the cruelty that lies beneath the compassion. That's what he claims to see. Whether he's right is sort of a different question. But anyway, so th- the idea of losing a few people a day, psh, you know, I mean, in, in the evolutionary mindset, what does that matter? It produces great things. And there's an element too. I mean, I don't know if having the, 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 what's going on in Qatar. I don't pay attention to sports. The, the world cup next. Okay. Next the world year. cup. I should care about that, I suppose. But, uh, but yeah, so the, the world cup, which is a huge deal. There's a part, I mean, if you see that as an, as an exertion of strength and greatness, which you might, cause, cause the only place where there's still one of the places in our society where there's still kind of an element of this ubermensch kind of this will to power attitude is really among athletes. They're probably one of the last places where it still sort of has a place in our society. Um, uh, then you could see that as, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth, it's worth the price of a few deaths of a bunch of name of nameless individuals in order to produce a situation in which it, it inspires people it, it brings people a sense of awe and admiration. On the other hand, Nietzsche does not see, so all that all that's one side. On the other hand, Nietzsche doesn't see the strong as being like what they used to be, right? This is one of the things he talked about. O- overcoming his pride. Nietzsche saw himself as one of the, at least on the edge of being one of the strong people. And he never, he wouldn't hurt a fly. Like he was, he was known to be compassionate and, and, and kind which might've been something he was fighting with, but, um, he was a, he was a friendly guy, you know, so on and forth. He's a little bit weird, but he's, he was a friendly guy and so on and so forth. And so I, I think for the most part, he was understood to be fairly, fairly compassionate. And so he doesn't think that strength necessarily manifests with a bunch of barbarians running around, just using people for their own ends. Um, he sees it as people actually, in fact, care, caring in some ways for the weak. Because those weak produce produce the structure on which you can build great things. On the other hand, losing a couple of them isn't really that big of a deal because they're replaceable. Weak people are all the same for the most part. And so there's, I mean, that sounds harsh, but there's an element where like this value of everybody's life, Nietzsche's like, in the grand scheme of things, really is not much value to anybody's life, right? If we recognize that there's no meaning to anything. So who cares? Make your own meaning. There's people who live according to other people's meaning. Those people are weak and they're a dime a dozen. There are people who create meaning and create all in the people around them. Those are the people who are valuable. And, and from an evolutionary, uh, from a materialistically evolutionary standpoint, that makes sense. You know, if, if, 
if we have this closed materialistic system, then uh, the goal is 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 moving forward, becoming greater. Um, yeah, the first know. people to create tools, the first people to be able to 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 purify or to make bronze, the pr- first people to be able to use iron tool, right? The first the the steps in the evolutionary chain where they overcame, right? Uh, the the fact that that Homo sapiens beat out Neanderthal, the Neanderthals, who cares about the Neanderthals? They all died, but that's not us. They didn't win, right? I mean, that's that's sort of. I mean, we care about them f- for a historic thing, but and you know maybe we feel bad for them or something. But the point is, there's like, yeah, but they didn't win. It's those who overcame that mattered. That's kind of the idea. Um, it's the over. It's the overcoming. Those are the ones who mark the shifts. And the movements up, and the movement toward the bigger and better and greater things in in history. So, so if if the goal is is an overcoming, if if Nietzsche is is framing things in that term, then in a weird and twisted way, it seems like there would almost be a sense of frustrated respect, maybe, for the priestly morality because it has managed to kind of overcome, even though. It's twisted everything horribly in Nietzsche's mind in the process. Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. This kind of a, I think he has kind of a grudging respect for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because how did how did something so weak overcome so much that was strong? It's strange, and 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 it it's, it didn't just overcome. The mark of something overcoming is it changes us, and Nietzsche believes it has changed us. That we humans now. Are have changed and there's no going back. We have become different because of this, and it's actually produced a higher. We have become, strangely enough, we become more interesting. At least, right? That's that's actually how he puts it. We become more interesting than we used to. Well, it, it in your in your summary in the last episode, you commented on a couple of things that that I think play a role in this and. I think if we look at this just from a uh, physical strength viewpoint, it becomes a very baffling story as to how this happened. But you mentioned the way that music is used, and you mentioned the way that emotions are used, and, and that's a, it's this entire package of humanity kind of thing rather than just the, the physicality such that those who can engage the emotions, those who can... Um, kind of move beyond just the, the the brute strength or the you know the 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 facts or however you want to describe it that that they can overcome that they can change who we are um just as well as you can through the the or even maybe even better than you can just through brute strength and and through the the facts alone um can you, can you say a little more about that or or am I going off in a really weird tangent? Here? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a weird tangent, but there's an element here where that is really important to Nietzsche. And that is uh, the, but this, this gets big and gets, gets us pretty, uh, maybe gets us far afield, but I may be able to connect it here, but it may not sound like I'm answering your question. Um, uh, I'm not even quite sure what the question was. Uh, <laughs> and if you're listening, maybe you feel the same way, but let, let me, let me say something about this. Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's, uh, philosophy is grounded in this idea of music. And I think I may have mentioned this in some of the summaries. Uh, yeah. I don't entirely uh, remember, but 
his first book that he ever wrote, which was a complete disaster, was uh, a book called The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. And his view, uh, if I if I can say that he has a metaphysical view, is that music is a reflection of reality as it really is. And one of the things that music does is it manifests. How do I want to say it? You get a hundred people can listen to a piece of music and get a hundred different scenarios in their mind, and that music contains all of them. None of them are wrong. And that almost sounds like you might say, well, that sounds sort of like relativism or perspectivalism or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, he thinks reality is more like that. The strong are those who listen to the music and give it the shape that they wish. The weak are those who listen to the music, are fearful because they don't understand it, and they're looking for someone else to tell them what to think. Or you could just say it's those who just say, hey, this music is about uh, is about this, and so they buy into it. And so you can think of marketing music is almost precisely how the weak approach music. I hear a song. I want somebody to tell me what I'm supposed to think about it. Oh, it means I'm supposed to get, I don't know, insurance from this company, or <laughs> I'll be happy if I buy this product, or I'll be happy if I do this or that or whatever. Um, and that's that's the weak one. The strong dis- despise jingles and really despise all tone painting that connects a piece of music with a very specific scenario because I don't need to be told what the music means. And music should never be subservient to a scene because music is always above it. And so... so let, let me ask a question here real quick. Um, so the weak are the ones who look to others to tell them what the music means. The strong are the ones who don't care what others think. They, they see it for themselves. They create their own meaning. Who are the people that are telling the weak and using the music to try to tell the weak what to think? Well, I think I think they're that. Well, I think both. I think both both the weak and the strong. But the weak would be sort of like the priestly leaders, right? Now, priestly, by the way, does not mean that you're actually a priest, a cleric of some sort. A priestly leader could be anyone from an actual pastor or whatever to the president of the United States to the CEO of a major company, um, whatever. Um, whoever plays on your values and tries to get you, say, to buy their product and it'll make you a better person or buy buy our product and it'll make you happy, right? So it's probably the, the biggest priests in our society might be CEOs, but I'm not really sure. Um, so, uh, but by the way, and there's not just the strong aren't just those who listen to the music and make it what they want it to mean. And I'm using I'm using music to mean almost reality itself, right? But there's also music itself, right? Because one of the examples of an Ubermensch would be someone who makes great music, right? And by great music, I don't mean really much of any of the music that's made today. At least Nietzsche <laughs> wouldn't think so. Um, but yeah, somebody who makes music. And, and 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 I should be clear with my question is I'm not saying that you know the if the uh, strong person heard an, an an upbeat piece of music they would think that it means you know something death like and dreary kind of thing like you know that I think I think Nietzsche would say that the strong rec- both recognize and create their own meaning su- such that um, you know they're they're not going to you know. Say be the kind of person that says there's a pink elephant in the room, and if you can't see the pink elephant, you know you don't know what you're talking about. When there's obviously not a pink elephant, that the strong do have some 
acknowledgement of reality as it is while creating their own meaning. Yes, that's good. Yeah, that's right. We don't, we don't, Nietzsche, Nietzsche would almost say something. I mean, he didn't use the term bad faith, but there's, you can't, you don't just, we're not creating ex nihilo, right? There's, there, the, the strong create out of a meta, this is why I say this is almost a metaphysical view of Nietzsche, where it's not perfect chaos where you make anything you want out of it. There's, there is an order to it. I always talk to students. Whenever I try to talk about Nietzsche, I talk about the Lego thing. And I think maybe we talked about this before, uh, the analogy uh, in one of the previous ones, where uh, Legos have a structure, but you can also make all different kinds of things out of them. And uh, there's a difference between the, 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 the weak are those who say, I want to go with whatever the structure says it is. They buy, the, they buy the Lego kits that make you build this, and they follow the instructions to a T. And if somebody breaks it or takes a piece out, they lose their minds. The strong are those who are like, yeah, I may follow the kit just to learn how. That's cool, but I'm also going to make my own stuff. I'm going to modify it myself. I'm going to break it and build something new. And so there, there's there's both a bit of disorder because the Legos are just sitting around, but there's also order because the Legos are, have the capacity to come together. And so I might be pushing the analogy too far, but there's an element of there's something music can't. There are limitations to what a what a piece of music can reflect, right? So. so so would we say that Nietzsche is saying that maybe this is a good way to put it and maybe I'm completely missing Nietzsche, but the Nietzsche is saying that there are kind of objects, valueless objects in the world and that the strong are the ones who bring the meaning to the objects, whereas the weak are the ones who have to be told what the what value they're supposed to bring to the objects. Yeah. I think Nietzsche would say all there are are valueless objects. Okay. We are the ones who give them value. And er the thing the point that he's making really is everybody's giving them their that value. It's just some people are too weak to admit it. And so they just take whatever somebody else tells them to give it, but that object doesn't have value. There's no such thing as value, right? Nietzsche Nietzsche is a nihilist, but he's he's a nihilist that admits he's a nihilist. The point is nihilism just is the case according to Nietzsche. Y'all are kidding yourselves. But yeah, there. That's a good way of putting it. That gets us back to the evaluative outlooks idea that if you've been listening for a while, you, you got. But yeah, the idea is that that things we we give everybody gives things value, but most people are looking for someone else to tell them what those values are. Okay, that's right. So how how does this connect with science? You mentioned science in your last summary. Um, science is. So the, the, there's scientism in the world, which says that you know science is the only arbiter of truth. That if science, if we can't come to a truth scientifically, it, it, it's it's not a truth. Um, and um, it seems to agree with Nietzsche that um, there are just valueless objects in the world. But the difference is, it seems like Nietzsche is saying, "Well, hold on, like we're bringing value to these objects." Uh, and the way that we we perceive them and put them together and stuff. Um, how does Nietzsche think science should be done, I guess? If, if, if we bring value to things that are just objects without value, how, what what does science look like for Nietzsche? Yeah, this is... This is an interesting topic because of... Because how Nietzsche approaches it, he almost sounds like a sort of weird Christian attacking science. But he also sounds like a full-fledged kind of, uh, maybe you could call a postmodern, whatever that term's supposed to mean, uh, relativist or something like that. 
And so it's kind of hard to figure out. It can be sort of strange. So Nietzsche has a lot of respect for science, a lot of respect for science. Um, at the same time, he doesn't think science is some pure, in some ways he sounds like he has no respect for science. Um, but let's put it that Nietzsche, Nietzsche holds to the idea that, uh, the fairly obvious idea that we all see things from a perspective. And he claims that what science, what science seems to be trying to get us to do is to see things without valuing those things. So here, here's, so Nietzsche does not think, okay, so objects have no value from a scientific perspective. Objects have no value. Sure. But we cannot see them without valuing. In fact, to see something is arguably to have established a value. I mean, I think that's what Nietzsche would say. Perspective, vision doesn't have, per, perception doesn't happen without valuing. And so we, we see things with values and what science keeps trying to get us to do is to try to remove our, our valuation, our giving of value to things, our caring, you might say. It's trying to get us to not care and still know. Well, there's no knowledge without caring. I mean, that's maybe a simpler, a clearer way to put it. If nobody cares, the knowledge will never form. Even things that we shouldn't care about, we learn by learning to care about them. Right. Trivia. Right. That kind of means knowledge that doesn't really matter. But it does because you care about it. And if you care about it, it matters. Right. And so there's no seat. There's no perception without valuing. Or we could say there's no knowledge without caring. And he says, he says that at this one point, he says this, uh, I may have read this. There is only a perspectival seeing, only a perspectival knowing. And so he says something more like, instead of trying to, and by perspective, he means something that, that involves your affects, your, 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 your valuing, your caring. Um, and he says, what, what's happening with science is it's trying to get us to not, it's trying to get us to remove our caring, but caring is what the will to power is. And so science is a lot like the ascetic ideal. It's trying to get us to erase our own will. In a way, the best way to know, if you want to know things objectively, the best way to do it is to die. Then you'll know things objectively. Now, you won't know anything, but you'll finally be objective. For the first time in your life, maybe life isn't the right word, (laughs) for the first time, you will truly be objective which means you'll be the perfect scientist. You'll be, you'll be uh, a disinterested knower, except you won't know anything because to be disinterested is, is not to know, right? You see the problem. And it sounds like he's just fiddling with stuff, but then he says this, the more affects we are able to put into words about a thing, the more eyes, various eyes we are able to use for the same thing, the more complete will be our concept of the thing, our objectivity. So his point is, rather than reducing what you care about, what you think about something, uh, develop concern for it. Develop different affects in relation to it. And it, by the way, it, this reminds me of, it's not a quote from Gregory of Nyssa, but I saw, uh, I saw uh, Rod Dreher wrote something about this, but it's not exactly a quote. It's sort of a, an attempt to su- summarize what he said, but he says, he said, only understand or only wonder understands anything. And the idea of wonder, now this is coming from the 
the the apophatic tradition, uh, church fathers, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, and so on and so forth. But the idea there is that I think we, in order to understand things, how how things really are, affects need to kick in. And I think there's a lot of people. I honestly think Christians should be seeing things this way. <laughs> that that if we look, and uh, I've talked about this before, but if objectivity is the is the means to acquiring truth, then God, who knows all things, must be perfectly objective, which means God looks at his creation without concern. That strikes me as obviously false. Mm-hmm. God looks at creation with love. He knows through love. That means that lack of affect, lack of concern is not the way to know the truth. Now, it's a way to know some things. And I think this is what the Nietzsche would probably say something like this. Science is good at a particular kind of thing, but it's still based on certain values. It's not even, it's not even true that it doesn't have values because you can't know anything without caring. So it's, it's, I don't know if he's, he doesn't come right out and say this, but science is based on a certain set of values. Um, tools. Science is the attempt to, to craft tools. Really, really fancy ones that do really, really neat things. And how do you do that? By understanding cause, causal relationships between different objects. Um, it's something like that. You know, I'm, I'm speculating here, so a little bit, but. So would, with, with Nietzsche's sense of objectivity be, being connected with kind of pouring more affect into it, would and the perspectivalism of Nietzsche would would he almost say to get at at objectivity as much as there, that's something to be to strive for? All, we we need to hear all the strong kind of uh, the way that they are um, are viewing are caring about a thing to give us a more complete picture of it. Um, be, uh, obviously, he wouldn't be looking to the weak to give their their value because their value they're look according to Nietzsche they're looking to others to tell them what the value is. But a sense of he comes up a you know a strong person comes up against another strong person, and um, they're while they might not have those values and care about it in that way, hearing what someone else says gives at least the, the society the cult the culture a bigger more objective in, in Nietzsche's sense of the, the, the term uh, view of it? Or um, do you not, does a strong person not care about other? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out. Uh, let, let, let me get, let me give you a kind of a, a, a semi concrete or it's not a concrete example, but a kind of example. So uh, when we're talking about it, like I feel like th- this does feel like we're getting kind of off in this abstract that's very difficult to understand. But think about it. Who are the people that transform your view of the world and of objects? It's people who take who take uh, take chances. So, for example, uh, and I, I don't know if Steve Jobs would be considered a strong person, but in some ways he kind of did. Like when I thought about the idea of a smartphone, getting access to the Internet on a phone, what am I going to do with that? I remember thinking that, like, why would I even care about such a thing? 
uh, back in the day. Because, I mean, the internet was kind of slow and there wasn't a lot on the internet, but he was kind of looking forward. And what he did was in many ways, he transformed our perspective of, of things uh, by taking a cha- by taking a risk and diving into something that was beyond what we had perceived it to be. Like we had a certain set of values connected with the phone and we had a certain kind of values connected with the internet. We, you know, and there's people who take these chances and jump ahead. And when they do, they, they transform our view. Like nobody look, nobody's going to look at it. ever since he came up with the iPhone, nobody looked at a phone the same way ever again. We had a bigger view of it. And it, that bigger view is based on possibilities. And that th- what Steve Jobs did didn't just ma- change our view of the phone. It transformed people's view of the possibilities so that a mm-hmm. whole new realm of possibilities opened up. He transformed the world because he transformed the way we value things or the way we perceive the value of something. And it created, I don't know if it's limitless possibilities, but a lot. I mean, he changed the world by changing the phone. At least compared to the corded phone on the wall that my parents had growing up, it does seem limitless. Um, Yeah. I mean, what what does your phone do now? It tells you how to go places. You can pay for stuff with it. You know, I, for one of my, for one of my jobs, I use it and it's, it does all the invoicing and everything. You can scan colors and it'll match. You can you can scan objects and it'll tell you what they are. You can buy stuff. You can sell stuff. You can voice. You can video. Ch- I mean, what can't you do with it? And so, um, uh, I mean, there are some things you can't do with it, like canoe. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can probably buy a phone case that does that. I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> it's probably someone out there. But but the point is, you see how one person who took a who took a risk who broke out of the status quo, broke out of the norms and and created a new sense of values around a particular thing, exploded in a whole new economy based around that. Um, that's that's one example, right? But if you know if we were to look at it with with disinterest, I mean in some ways maybe he looked he could see the possibilities because he wasn't stu- he didn't he just didn't buy into what he was told about a phone. Right. Uh, you might say that about, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX, or you might say it about, I don't know, the people who who invented the first telephone or, or who first did radio back in the day. Right. Uh, I think somebody said, who cares about a, mess, a message being sent to no, no one in particular? Who cares about that? Well, apparently we all do. Um, uh, so so anyway, we, you, you can see these kinds of that's that's a kind of concrete example about how the strong broaden our understanding of possibilities, but realize what he's just done. He made the, the, the phone, which we all knew what the phone was and we knew it was for, and we knew what it did. He broke down the structures that we had. And in so doing created a whole new world of possibility. He made it more like actual music. He brought us a musical perspective on the phone. That's the objective perspective is that there are, all kinds of values that we can, we can attach to this. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, that makes more sense that, that, that the, uh, you know, cause it, it, again, you know, this, this idea of society and, and the relation of the strong to society is, is something that um, I think, you know, I, I kind of struggle. And I think a lot of people who, who see Nietzsche struggle with, because it seems like he's very individualistic. Um, I mean, he's seen as a 
it's kind of one of the forebears of uh, of existentialism because of how individualistic he he comes across. Yeah. But um, he also seems to not just be critical of society, but see purpose for society and and trying to to put those pieces together is um, is something that that I, I think this has been helpful for. Um, you know, because I the the you know, people who can, like you said, break the mold, break the the standards. Um, there's something uh, powerful about that, and and it's, I mean, Steve Jobs. This, this is where the Steve Jobs analogy might break down, and uh, or why why he might not be a strong person. But um, you know, the strong, I I think Nietzsche would say the strong open up the possibilities, and the, you know, but they don't force everyone else to see the possibilities. They just kind of say, hey here's all these possibilities and I'm going to kind of go down this path to, to pursue these possibilities. And Steve Jobs said, I'm going to try and get everyone else to see these possibilities so that they pay me lots of money and make me feel really good about myself. I mean, we, yeah. we could. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know much about Steve Jobs, but yeah, there can be an element. And I think, I think in many ways, a lot of us have elements of the weak and the strong within us. If, if we were to look at Nietzsche that way. Um, uh, and and really one one thing about Nietzsche is that uh, the he you know and I, he talks about this in the third essay about how the biggest danger to the strong is the weak because to be surrounded by the weak undermines their will to maintain their strength and so even something like you can imagine someone who is a great artist a truly great artist but in fact this happens all the time. I don't know about them being truly great artists, but there are, there are bands that create music. They start to get mainstream and then we criticize them because uh, they start, in order to make money, they start kind of appeasing the masses to become popular. Well, what are we criticizing there? We're criticizing the fact that they've lost their individuality, their their particular artistic ability, and they've started writing songs that are that are that appeal to a broader audience and so they become corrupted. Their music becomes less interesting. It becomes more generic. Or, or, or they're trying to reproduce the success that they had in, in a pre, in a, with a previous perspective that once they became popular, trying to you know, recreate what, what they had before then isn't going to work and their music suffers for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see the other ones who keep like setting, they in many ways set trends. Right. I mean, they just, you just, um, uh, but a lot of those people don't get recognized till later on, right. Till they're, you know, suddenly the song becomes popular. This band becomes popular, you know, 20 years after they stopped making music. Um, and so there's, uh, there's, we see elements of this, uh, all the time, a mixture of strong and weak and strong and weak. But the, the thing is what, what can, or, and that's almost evidence that what undermines the, the strong is breathing the air of the weak. Um, but the major thing here is, again, this isn't, I mean, money is one thing, so on and so forth, but for Nietzsche, the main thing that's a problem is the morality. I mean, that's that's his emphasis here. The main thing that's a problem is the morality, and and the weak begin to condemn the strong because they don't, f they're not living according to the, the, the standards of, of the weak. And so, and it's not just condemn, but they they have a strong desire to blame the strong for the fact that they themselves are not experiencing the wonder of the strong or something like that. 
And so they bring the strong down through moral claims. The strong end up bending. Um, after all, the majority of people are weak. And so the majority of them are going to be drawn to this sort of thing. And so. Uh, so, so I, we're, we're, we're getting to a, a, a point where I think uh, we should probably wrap up this episode. Um, you know, I think we've hit on a lot of the themes of the third essay uh, in more detail. And, you know, we can start. We're in the next episode, we'll start shifting to a, a broader critique, um, kind of both of what does Nietzsche have to say uh, more generally about what, what would Nietzsche say today in our culture, but also as Christians um, you know, who serve a savior who says, you know, my, my, you know, who tells Paul that my, my strength is made perfect in weakness that um, you know, that, that, that the wisdom of the cross was, is foolishness to man, you know, all, all these kinds of, of things that, um, that seem to be, or at least to use the language that Nietzsche, Nietzsche disdains. Um, how, how does that, how does, how does Nietzsche's critique actually apply to Christianity and how much does it apply to Christians who are trying to overcome, uh, in the in the world in the Nietzschean sense um and how does Christianity does Christianity overcome in the Nietzschean sense and and just uh getting into more of those kinds of big questions um as well as um is there could there be a kind of Christianity that that Nietzsche would respect um uh, not in a begrudging kind of way but being like yes that they you know they are living in a way that uh that is is a healthy, strong way, while not sacrificing their Christianity. Uh, th these are questions that we're going to dig into more. Um, but I, I think now might be a good time to wrap it up, and we can shift that in into the next episode. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I I at the very least, after five episodes, if you've stuck with with us, I think you can see that the caricature of Nietzsche as being this guy who hates God, who just wants to destroy Christianity, who's all about, uh, you know, just get what you want kind of thing is, is a really, uh, horrible caricature. Um, it, it comes from a very surface reading of Nietzsche. It's, it's not what Nietzsche is actually doing. He's doing a lot more under the surface. You want to say any more about that before we wrap it up? Yeah, and I think I mean this is sort of a preview, but I think I think Nietzsche has a lot of really good insights for Christians. Um, and we've kind of danced around it a little bit. I've tried to again, just like you said, I've tried to stick with more of a answering the basic questions, get get kind of understanding what's going on here. But I think he has a lot of insights for what's what's going on in contemporary society, and a lot of that you might just have to figure out yourself. Uh, I think it's relatively obvious, uh, but. Uh, what what it means what he means for Christians uh, yeah I, I I think there's a lot here and it's not that Nietzsche's right about everything that's not I'm not gonna say he's right about everything we need to become Nietzschean Christians that's a little bit silly there's an element there's a fundamental thing that Nietzsche has there's a fundamental thing that Nietzsche has completely wrong and it and it fiddles even though he has tremendous insight into human nature it throws everything off a little bit and yet, He's right about so much, but it's fundamental. There's a fundamental element of his view, and it's not 
God, God exists or doesn't exist. It's, 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 it's not quite that, but we could, we could talk about that next, uh, next week. Um, but yeah, Nietzsche gets, gets something wrong. It throws everything off the, the problem. And here's a preview. The problem is most Christians agree with Nietzsche's fundamental view, which is why even Christianity, uh, Christian, this is why Christianity is becoming more and more difficult to, be, to believe because we agree with Nietzsche's fundamentals, but we disagree with him on details. We need to recognize the fundamental where we disagree with him, and then we can understand how he's both right and wrong about the de- details. So that, that sounds a little bit like maybe I'm just dancing around, but there's something about that. And hopefully it'll become clear. We can make this very clear next week, and then we can see how important and how magnificent Nietzsche is uh, while also being badly wrong in a way yes i i think there's there's a lot of uh, great things in the upcoming episode or two or however many more we end up doing on this uh, <laughs> as, not as, too many. as you can see that you know nietzsche has has a lot of of things that um can be difficult to understand but when we start to dig into them a little deeper you're like huh that's that's interesting. I want to I, I want to understand a little more what he's saying, why he's saying it. Not that I'm going to agree with it, but it, it's it's not a simple reductionistic uh, view of the world. Um, he's he's offering us something complex that offers us insight into human nature, um, or at least the way that human nature is perceived um, by someone who uh, is not a Christian themselves. All that to say, we, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, join us again next week. Thanks for sticking uh, with this. I, I, I think uh, those of you who have made it this far are seeing the benefits and seeing the payoff of, of this deep dive. And, uh, and we're going to continue the deep dive and do another deep dive into another philosopher after, into another philosophical work after this. Uh, have a great week. This is Joel. This is Travis. Thanks for listening.